today's program, the delirium that often accompanies a stay in the ICU. I can't figure out where I am. I thought, I'm in a motel. And I thought, I, I can't be in a motel. And then I, I, I looked across the room and I was convinced that I saw a car parked there with its headlights on. And I thought, I, I have to get out of this hospital. One of the strange truths of our age of medicine is that just about the worst place to be when you're really sick is in the hospital. It's well known that patients can acquire an infection just by being hospitalized. But did you know that a large number of very sick patients cared for in an ICU can also develop an altered mental state? People who develop delirium in the ICU are experiencing the strongest predictor of all of death, length of stay, cost of care, and even an acquired dementia. That's Dr. Wes Ely. His new book is called Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. He's our guest today on the Hear Me Now podcast, which comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Glad you're listening today. Stay with us. Hey, Dr. Ely, uh, do you have a copy of the book handy? Got it. Why don't you read from the prologue, um, page 10, starting with My Path. My path through the world of modern medicine is the basis for this book. After my treatment of Teresa Martin, I set out to understand how critical care had strayed from its hopeful beginnings and lost its way. How cutting-edge technology could both exponentially improve survival rates for those with critical illness and unintentionally lower the quality of life for many of those survivors. And whether saving lives should be the only goal for ICU doctors. Along the way, I discovered that the loss of humanity that occurred in medicine over the last 50 years is an essential component of this story. It is imperative that we all change the culture of critical care, entrenched as it may be, and modify the way healthcare is delivered in the ICU. Our patients' lives depend on it. Through their stories, you will experience what it looks like to have your life saved, to be a good outcome for doctors, only to return home to a life so limited you might sometimes wish you hadn't survived at all. You'll learn why the classic sedate and immobilize standard of ICU care for patients on ventilators should be discarded. And you'll see a remarkable move toward rehumanization in healthcare that's underway in thousands of ICUs, including my own, where doctors and nurses heal the world's sickest patients with complete care, technology plus touch. This return to humanity, a comprehensive and evidence-based approach offers hope to critically ill patients and their families. It's time to make it available everywhere. That's Wes Ely, reading from his new book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. Dr. Ely is our guest today, here to talk about making ICUs better places for patients. Dr. Ely is also going to be taking part in an upcoming online conference on November 1st, organized by the Providence Institute for Human Caring. It's called Personalizing Care 
in a transactional world. And here to talk about that conference for a little bit is Dr. Matt Gonzalez, the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Institute for Human Caring. He joins me now on the line. Hi, Matt. Hi, Sean. Good to be with you. Personalizing care in a transactional world. What what are we hoping the day will uncover? Well, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think there's so many themes that I'm excited about and that we're going to talk about, but I, I really do think that it is around this central theme of, of personalization. You know, um, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, have regularly been to the doctor in the last year, but even my own experience was fairly transactional. I mean, I, I honestly think that if I saw my own PCP walking down the street, that he probably wouldn't recognize me. And I think that this conference is about envisioning a better way to provide care to people so that we know who they are. We know what matters to them. We, we can recognize them on the street and, you know, we're not a hundred percent there yet within American healthcare or even within Providence. But I think this is aspirational in nature to talk about the different ways in which we can make medical care more personal and more interactive and, and know who people are, who the the patients are that we see, you know, I think the word patient even in itself is a word that I would love us to get away from and recognize that like the patients that we serve are actually needs to be leveraged to the, the people that we serve. Right. And a lot of what this conference is about is about helping everyday people recognize that this is possible and also showing across the U.S. to health system leaders, to executives to say, we all agree this is the better way to do it. And let's envision different snippets of places where we can begin to work on this together, whether it be the intensive care unit or whether it be in the digital space or whether it be in recognizing grief down the road. Like all of those places are right for us to be able to think about how we do this better. Now, you're on a panel about humanizing the electronic health record. What's up your sleeve? So I, I'm excited to be on this panel, and I'm actually excited to hear the pre-talk. Um, so each most of the sessions will be, you know, a 10 to 15-minute impactful talk within a group of two or three of us reacting. And Sara Vazy from our digital innovations team is going to be doing the sort of big talk where she's going to share a lot about how we envision the future of not just the electronic health record, but of the digital space um, you know, the reality is I think that healthcare is being delivered, you know, in this digital space, we're all far more facile with Zoom and Teams and video calls and chats after these last 18 months. And I think that while those have been really powerful technologies, I think we all also recognize that they can be disconnecting yeah. and that we need to learn how to do them well. And so I think that that panel is a lot about trying to figure out how we do that well, how we use digital devices to help connect us and to make it easier, right? So that we don't go backwards and we can access our healthcare team via video without needing to go in and see them. But how we do that such that it still feels connecting and not not this disconnect that we often feel. So I, I'm excited to be on that panel along with Greg McCool from Patient Wisdom, where we're doing actually a, a pilot of these um, get to know me posters in a digital sense. There are things that we're going to use in the inpatient hospital to just trial so that 
if I'm admitted into the hospital, for instance, that somebody who loves me can upload a photo of what I look like in my regular life and mm. talk about what I, you know, what movies I like or what I watch on TV so that the people that are interacting with me in the hospital can know a little bit more about my human humanity and, and who I am, even if I'm mm. unable to communicate for myself. It's almost like you want the electronic health record to be in service of the encounter, not the driver of the encounter. Like I'm here to click boxes while we're together. That's so well put, Sean. And I, I think we're growing in this space. You know, when, when I think about the digital technologies that we use, um, we're kind of, it kind of still feels like we're in the, the VHS versus Betamax conversation, right? <laughs> and, and like streaming technology exists, we're going to get there, but it's going to take a little more time. And so, but it's er important for us to have these early conversations about making sure that we're on the right path. Oh, it's such a great example because of course, Betamax was a better format. I mean, it mm -hmm. looked better, you could do more with it, and yet it ended up losing the battle because the transactional voices won out. Now, who has a VHS player? I ask <laughs> <you>. <laughs> we will get there. I think we're going to get to this like novel future, but I'm excited to be having that conversation with people because to your point, Sean, if we don't have it proactively, if we don't think about it now, other people are going to be making that decision for us. And yeah. I would much rather be have clinicians, have patients be advocating for what works for them. Dr. Wes Ely, who's going to be coming back in just a minute, he's going to be part of a session on whole person care in the ICU. So the very sickest patients in the hospital, the prescription here is don't lose sight of the fact that these are people. This is a human being with a connection with all sorts of communities and with a family and with aspirations and hopes and dreams and fears. All of that. I am so looking forward to his talk. I mean, I've I've just started his book and it's phenomenal what I've read. And you know, the lessons really resonate to me. Having seen and cared for patients in the ICU over my career and over this pandemic and working with patients and families who have been in the ICU um, with COVID and tell you, you know. The lack of visitation over the last number of months has been so painful because it's just really hard to know who people are. And, yeah. you know, I've did a lot of family meetings where I would meet with families outside the walls of the hospital and just, you know, in the parking lot so people could see my face through all of the PPE just to deliver and to be able to say, like, I, we are doing everything that we can to care for your loved one and, and tell me about who they are. Because if we don't have that human connection, it becomes um, easier, I think, to not see the brilliance of who people are or recognize that while our hospitals are very full, that um, we can provide the best care possible if we're really recognizing the, the central humanity of folks, and, and that's been lost truthfully in, in some places because it's been so busy and there's been lack of visitation, but I'm, I'm really excited to hear Wes's thoughts on this because um, it's powerful, important stuff. We're talking about personalizing care in a transactional world. It's the subject of a online conference, November 1st, and I'm talking to Dr. Matt Gonzalez. Um, Matt Tembi Locke, the, the actress and the um, activist, 
uh, is going to meet up with our colleague, um, Ira Bayak, in, of all places, a kitchen. Tell me about that. I I am so excited for this one. Um, you know, Tembi has been a longtime friend and supporter of the Institute. We first met her in 2015, um, and she's such a bright, shining light. Um, Tembi, when she was young, went to Sicily and... Um, you know, fell in love, uh, had this incredible relationship and marriage to a man who was a chef and from Sicily and learned a lot about life and love through the lens of food. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, after a 20 year relationship, he, uh, had a serious illness and ended up dying. And, this book from scratch is just an amazing exploration, truthfully, of that journey of hers mm. and an exploration of caregiving and love um, and grief um, shared through the lens of food. And, you know, when I think a lot about uh, the ways in which we in our society have conversations, um, they're often around a table. They're often shared um, by making a meal, you know, I, I come from a, um, a Mexican family and certainly food is a very central part of the way in which we relate and, and a huge part of our culture. And so to me, I think this is a really powerful theme that resonates truthfully, no matter what culture you're from, no matter where you live, food is, is caregiving. And so being able to have Ira and Tembi in a kitchen to explore some of those themes together to talk about what caregiving is like, what love, central lessons of love and, and what grieving is like is really important. You know, I think that in our transactional healthcare world, we often think about when somebody dies as the ending of a relationship from us as a healthcare team to that person. And yet their family lives on and their family has been through a lot. And so recognizing that journey and recognizing that it doesn't have to be the end and that we can continue to have relationships with these people and to be able to help them grow and to, to experience um, grief in a way that helps them to process and to, to move forward is really important. Now, from the sublime to the practical, there's continuing education credit available there is yeah we're offering um cme to anybody that's uh attending the conference um we're really excited to be able to offer i think it's uh going to be a nice exploration of all of these concepts and at the same time you're going to be able to get continuing medical education credits to be able to add to your bank for when you recertify so again, that's personalizing care in a transactional world. It's coming up on Monday, November 1st, 8 a.m. to noon Pacific time. Registration's open. You can find more information at instituteforhumancaring.org slash conference. Now, if you're listening to the podcast after November 1st, there's still good news. We've archived the conference and you can find it at instituteforhumancaring.org. Matt, it sounds like a really great half day. I'm really looking forward to it. Matt Gonzalez is a palliative care physician and chief medical information officer at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Matt, thank you. Thanks for sharing a little bit about it, Sean. Appreciate it. As we said, Wes Ely is also taking part in the conference. Dr. Ely is a pulmonologist and a critical care physician 
who spent a good part of his career researching how intensive care units work and developing ways to improve patient outcomes and the personalism there, something he calls technology plus touch. Dr. Ely is professor of medicine at the Vanderbilt School of Medicine, and he's back with us now from Nashville. Dr. Ely, it's wonderful to have you back. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. So to understand the power of what you call technology plus touch and the rehumanization that's underway, you tell some really fascinating stories of how intensive care units really came to be and how treatment protocols emerged over the last 50 years. What's important for us to understand about the way ICUs work? I think it's important to realize that well-intended nurses and doctors, and I include myself in this group, we are problem solvers and we like to take control of situations. So when somebody gets unexpectedly critically ill and they come under our care in the intensive care unit, we ask ourselves, check, 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 what's the problem, how do I fix it? And if the rest of the body seems to be okay, but the lungs have now gone bad, or the lungs and the kidneys, then it's very easy for me as an ICU doctor to go, okay, fix the lungs, fix the kidneys, and everything else will be fine. And where that, that goes awry is the truth of what really happens, which is that what gets you in the ICU doesn't contain itself to those problems. So that very quickly, I, that is within the first day of being there, you start accruing problems in other organs. So if my mind stays focused just on the lung and the kidney, I miss all these other levels and aspects of care that you need from me as your healer. And one of the instances of that is a type of delirium that is common in the sedated, ventilated patient. Correct. And this is a, a global form of the brain not working anymore. And we used to write that off as not a big problem. We thought, well, they came in with a lung problem, so the confusion they now have, that's just an innocent bystander. But what we've now known for over 20 years is that that brain dysfunction, the delirium, is actually the strongest predictor we've got of whether or not you're going to live or die. And it also predicts length of stay and cost and even acquired dementia. Give us an example of someone experiencing that. What, what do you see as the caregiver? What does the family see? How does the patient experience it? Sure, I'll give you an example of Kyle Mullicane, who was in the ICU with pancreatitis. And so looking at him, his wife and I thought, well, his pancreas is the problem. He was on the ventilator with a tube down his mouth, so he couldn't talk to us. But he was awake and looking around, and he kept staring up at the monitor the entire time, and we thought that he was taking an interest in his own vital signs. Well, it turned out that he actually was hallucinating a black jaguar on top of the monitor. He called it, months and years later, an apex predator. And he, more real than, than a dream, more real than real, he thought, why is this apex predator about to leap on us, pounce on us, and kill us, and none of you seem to care? And so all through the day and the night, he was petrified just extremely scared and still has dreams about that. We couldn't tell. We thought he was taking an interest in his, in his you know, heart rate and blood pressure. Another guy 
named Anthony Russo, who's in the book, every night while his wife was looking at him with H1N1 uh, flu and pneumonia and ARDS, thought, wow, he, he, he looks peaceful. He looks fine. But he was dreaming every night that he was in a game show and three people were there with bags over their heads and he had to shoot one of them each day and then they would take the, the bag off the head and it was his daughter every time. And he kept switching to different people and every time it was his daughter. And now 10 years later, Sean, he still has that same dream every night. And he says, Wes, it's not dream, it's real to me. And it, it's left him with tremendous PTSD and depression, and he's afraid to go to sleep. So this was commonly appreciated by clinicians, right? I mean, it, it wasn't that this was happening and no one noticed that it was happening, but you and your colleagues thought, it was just to be expected. It was part of the price of doing business in an ICU. That's a or... great way of putting it. Yeah, we actually called it ICU psychosis, meaning that we thought being in an ICU causes you to go crazy for a bit, and that made it seem acceptable. So 20 years ago, I invented a tool called the CAM ICU, which is now translated into 35 languages used all over the world. And what we did was we used that valid tool, which takes 37 seconds at the bedside. It's crazy easy. And we proved that the more days that you were delirious, the more likely you were to die and to have all these other downside complications like an acquired dementia. But nobody knew that before then. We, we knew it was happening, but we just thought it wasn't a problem. And how are things different now? Right, the way that they're different now is that we actually look for this actively, because it turns out that when you don't actively look for it, you miss delirium 75% of the time. You know, we would never allow ourselves to miss oxygen levels going down 75% or blood pressure dropping into shock range even 10%, but yet we allow ourselves to miss delirium three-fourths of the time. So what we do differently now, I'll give you two answers. One is that we look for it and diagnose it, and then when we find it, we run through a quick checklist, a safety checklist of ways to make the delirium go away. And the easiest way to tell you is we run the Dr. Dre. You know Dr. Dre, the famous rapper. So. We do DDRE, which is Diseases, Drug Removal, and Environment. And we think, what diseases could be causing this delirium, like COVID, for example, or a bacterial infection, or emphysema? What drugs should be removed, like specific antibiotics, um, sedatives, benzodiazepines specifically, Benadryl, common things that cause your brain to go crazy. And the environment is a big part of this, Sean, which is when we make sure we have people who need glasses and hearing aids have those available to them. Uh, sensory deprivation is a big part of this. And then we also know that keeping people in a bed really drives delirium. So just getting them out of bed cuts delirium in half. So those are all things that we do now that are so different when before we thought, well, that's not a big deal. Just leave them in the bed. Let them have their delirium. No harm done. Whoa, we were so wrong. I'm talking with Dr. Wes Ely, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Vanderbilt and the author of Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICUs. In ICUs under the old dispensation, patients were often deeply sedated. You've, you've talked about the role that drugs could play in the delirium. F from what I read in the book, a lighter sedation is used now, 
a person is being able to rest comfortably, but then be aroused if they need to be. And the listeners might think, well, gosh, I, I want to be knocked out. Don't keep me awake. But it turns out that we actually randomized hundreds of patients to the old way, deep sedation for many days, versus the newer way, which is lighter, and stopping the drugs every day. And what we found was that those people who got the new way actually were much more likely to live. It, it actually changed survival. And then they went on to get out of the hospital four days sooner, have a 15% reduction in likelihood of dying, which is one of the largest reductions in death we've, we've seen in critical care. To put that in today's perspective, steroids and COVID improve your chance of, of living versus dying about 2 to 3%. So this changed 15%, the likelihood of surviving. And so that's the new way is to keep people more awake and alert. And we make sure that they're not in pain and we ask them about anxiety, but we know that keeping them in a coma is very, very dangerous. You were inspired by walking into an ICU in, in Denmark. It was a great experience for me because it showed me too how my judgment is wrong and I need to quit judging things before I experience them myself. You know, that's where Hans Christian Andersen is from, the famous fairy tale writer. And, you know, this, the fairy tale about the emperor has no clothes. I thought that that's what I was going to walk into. It was kind of an emperor has no clothes situation. But they had been writing about people being awake and alert on the ventilator. And when I went into that ICU in Odense, Denmark, they were all awake. And patients were writing and talking to their families and having experiences that were engaging and, and meaningful to them in their relationships. And I left there just thinking, wow, I am so convicted because as a physician, I've not been treating my patients as whole people. I've been depersonalizing them by the way I've been handling their care. And I came back to the United States absolutely committed to doing a better job for my patients and for helping other people learn how to do a better job too through science. So what does it look like now in the Vanderbilt ICUs? Are you you're getting people up and walking around if they can? Uh, well, I'll tell you, not just in Vanderbilt, but across the United States, uh, between 2010, that Denmark trip, and about 2019, we had dramatic improvements in delirium. We saw delirium rates in ventilated patients go from around 70 to 80 percent all the way down to the 40s. And this was a tidal change in the way the brain was working for these ICU patients based upon this way we were handling them with this safety bundle I was telling you about earlier, which we call the A2F bundle, letter A, number two, letter F. All this is available on our website, icudelirium.org. And then when COVID hit, it all went south. What happened was across the world, people started deeply sedating patients again, using benzodiazepines again, and we kind of reverted back into the 1990s. There were times, Sean, when I was in the ICU in the COVID unit, and I honestly was like, wow, what's going on? I feel like I've gone back 20 years, back to when I didn't have gray hair. Uh, now, a year and a half into this, we're getting our footing. Patients are now more awake and alert. We're walking them again on the ventilator, and we're back to what we know works for people. But we did have a big downturn in the beginning of the pandemic. Do you think COVID patients should have been treated differently? I think that we were scared. Fear drives you to do different things. And the other thing that happened was with the surges, we brought in people into the ICU who weren't actually ICU people and they knew nothing about the A2F bundle. They knew nothing of this literature. 
So it's not on them really. It's just that it happened so fast that many of them thought, well, they were trained in the 90s, so they just kind of did it that way, or they were brand new to medicine, and they didn't know the hazards of keeping people deeply sedated and immobilized. So I think people got care that wasn't the best for them. I, I'm not pointing a finger, because I'm included in this group, but I do think that we've learned a lot. I, I'll tell you, I had some fellows who trained with us in at Vanderbilt and they're now running all the major ICUs in southern Louisiana and New Orleans and you know we had a huge surge down in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and they wrote to me and said Wes we, we lost our way but we're getting back to what we know works and they sent me a picture recently of a woman on a ventilator on a hundred percent oxygen with 18 of PEEP which is a very high level of ventilator support and she was wide awake holding up a sign that she had written on that said to her family, get the damn vaccine. And, uh, you know, that was really a poignant <laughs> moment for me because it showed me that they were doing what, what we had learned and proven works for people. So much of your book focuses on your understanding um, that the rapport with patients is an important part of their care, the conversation that you're able to have at the bedside. And I, I'm impressed by that. I'm impressed by the personalism that it represents and the respect for the humanity, both of the caregiver and of the patient. I've got a question uh, that bugs me about being ill in America. Our primary care docs are the people who know us the best and with whom we have probably the longest history and long best rapport. And yet when we get seriously ill, we end up going to a hospital and be cared for by residents or fellows or people that we may never have met before. And that always bothers me that, that uh, I have heart disease. And every time I've been hospitalized over the last 10 years, the primary care physician with whom I have the best conversations is never rounding with the people that come to see me. And I always wonder, why isn't she there? Why, why haven't we figured out a way that the person who knows the patient the best and whom the patient trusts can't be part of their care when they're really sick. And you know, Sean, you're right. There's, a, there, there's something broken in that system. I will tell you that I love it when a primary care doctor calls me and says, look, I know Sean, here's what matters to him. And I say, I stop what I'm doing, sit down and say, talk to me. Tell me about him, who is he, and what's going on. The truth is that the technology is so intense in the ICU now. You know, an ICU room is like a, it's like one of the most expensive hotel rooms you could ever ask for. I have a part in the book that tells you how much per square foot we spend on the technology in those rooms. And these outpatient doctors would not feel comfortable manning those machines or running those machines. But there's no reason why we shouldn't benefit you by knowing what they know about you. So I love it when I can connect to the primary care doctor, and I try to. In the absence of that, what I'm talking about in the book is my now new way of practicing medicine in the intensive care unit, which is to kneel down, keep you awake, look at you in the eyes, hold your hands. Sean, what matters to you? Tell me about yourself. I want to know your pet's names. I want to know who you are. I want to. I want to see you when you before you came to me. You came in vivid color. You had foods you loved, music you loved, 
hobbies. And when you come to the ICU, the old way was a depersonalization chamber that made me see everybody in gray tones. And what I'm telling you is that what every deep drawn mm-hmm. breath is about in the stories of these people is how I unlearned that depersonalization chamber, threw it out, and said, when you come to me, I want to know who you are in full vivid color. And if you can't tell me because you're too sick, because that's, that's the case, and some of these people listening will think, well, what is he talking about? Some of these people are too sick to talk. Absolutely. But then I want to talk to the loved ones. I want to talk to somebody who's important in your life. Let them tell me about you. And the F in the bundle is family, because I want family present with me on rounds so they can hear what I'm saying and then tell me, filling in the holes of what I know about you. It's the, this gets back to empathy right. versus sympathy. And sympathy is you know, feeling sorry for someone. Um, empathy is feeling with someone. And what, what I want to be able to do is enter down into the chaos of your life and then lift you and heal you. And the only way to do that is if I know all about you. How do families respond to that? They must be gratified to see someone caring for their loved one uh, that personally. I hope they see it as the right thing to be doing. And if they never were in the ICU before, they'll just see it as, wow, this is the way the ICU works. Well, this is great. But there have been many people who've said, this seems different now. You know, you're more involved. And I'm not taking credit for this, by the way. This is our whole team, the pharmacists, the nurses, the occupational and physical therapists, the chaplains, the social workers. It's a beautiful situation when the whole team is on this page of how can we help you? How can we magnify your dignity? And I learn from all these other people on the team every day about ways to do that better. And I think that the families love it and I think that they really appreciate being on rounds with us because they used to just get some distance message from a nurse later in the day or something, but now they're hearing the nitty gritty of what's going on right there on rounds, which is so much better. Yeah. How important is it that families talk about the likelihood that they'll end up in an ICU setting when they're talking about advanced care planning? Um, I think the figure you used is one in five people uh, die in an intensive care unit. And, and, and the average person will have over one ICU admissions in their lifetime. So everybody in our country and around the world in developed nations will have an ICU experience with themselves or a loved one without, without question. That, that's going to happen unless you die so early that you, that you miss out on that. So if we're all involved in this, and if it's that much a part of our culture, then yes, we need to be having these conversations about what would I want under those circumstances. You know, do I want full bore life support? Do I want it in what we call a time-limited trial where you try it for two to three days and then ask the question again, is this doing anything? Is there a place to go here? Or should we withdraw support? Notice I didn't say withdraw care. We never stop caring. But people do say mm-hmm. that question. They say, do you, maybe we should withdraw care. No. We never withdraw care, but we can withdraw the life support because sometimes it is more appropriate for a different person based upon their preferences that their life take its natural course in the absence of life support, in which case I just switch my ladder from the wall of cure to the wall of comfort and climb that ladder for this person instead. And that just has to be a very personal decision that that I come to through knowing who the person is and talking to their loved ones. Hmm. 
it's it's um, gratifying to know that the practice of medicine has changed in ICUs because of this effort. I'm curious about the architecture of those units. If you were designing an ICU from the ground up, would it look any different than what we're used to seeing? Would there be more space for families to camp out at the bedside? What would it look like? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, most of you have heard of sick building syndrome. And sick building syndrome is when the building itself is causing harm and some sort of physical dysfunction in the person's body. Many of us work in an ICU that has sick building syndrome because the, the rooms weren't designed right. They all need a complete bathroom with a shower, a walk-in shower, because we need to be able to give patients showers. When they can go in a shower, it makes them feel completely different and they, they, they regain a desire to live and a feeling that they are a human being and that they can make it. So walk-in showers, uh, an, an area adjacent to the bed which is large and has a double place for two people to sleep. You know, Wi-Fi access and all that is, is of course obvious, but I think two warm tones. You know, our ICUs have wooden parquet floors, for example, which is very engaging and it's very warm and it's healing. And, and then noise reduction technology is very important because the ICUs can be as loud as a tarmac and that's very disturbing to sleep. We need to have um, a, a light installed I'm testing this now, but we have a light installed on the ceiling of some of our rooms that will provide lux, L-U-X, like sunlight, so that during the day they can get their, their lux. It changes the way the pineal gland works in the brain and helps you keep your diurnal cycle, your day-night cycle, appropriate so you can get better sleep. And you know, open, open windows and open lighting. I can't tell you how many times I wheeled an ICU patient over to the window, let them get sun, and then a day later, they're like, take me outside to the patio. I want to be on the patio. So even on a ventilator, we do that. And we walk them around the patio on the ventilator because they're not sedated into the Stone Age with their benzodiazepines anymore. And they feel like people. You know, it used to be that when we took somebody off the ventilator, they couldn't walk anymore because their legs were so weak. But now when we're walking them on a routine basis, the day they get off the ventilator, they're walking up and down the hall. And it's because we didn't allow their muscles and nerves to get so diseased by this acquired problem of, of PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. And think about how that can happen in the brain too. If we keep the brain engaged, the brain won't undergo so many days of delirium and not, not have so much d dementia. So all of these things are, are part and parcel of what I think a modern day ICU should look like and have in order to create and foster the right sort of healing atmosphere for a patient. Well, as I said before, it's, it's gratifying and exciting to know that you all have had success in making some changes here. Thank you for that work. I'm impressed that you've chosen to train and practice in cities with great music, um, New Orleans and Nashville now, and even a, a year in St. Louis, which is where I'm talking to you from. Um, how important is that sort of personalization of the environment for patients who are critically ill. This is an incredibly important part of their recovery. And even when they're in the ICU on a ventilator, and if they do have to have deep sedation, because some of your listeners will have loved ones who do need it for a day or two, I, I tell them, put, a, put the iPod, put the playlist on and headphones so they can hear the music that they love. And that makes a huge difference to healing. 
there are great data on music therapy and this is a, a big part of what I think should be present in every ICU patient circumstance. I think this has saved people's lives. I, I, I have no doubt that this has happened and there's, there are good data to say also from Michigan and other studies done published in JAMA that show that we can reduce delirium by music. And music's a big part of my life. As you said, St. Louis, New Orleans, Nashville. John Prine is in the book and, and Fiona Prine talks about him as he was dying of COVID in the ICU, which was extremely sad. Maya Angelou is in the book because she was my patient and she sang for me in the clinic. And I'll never forget that. So these are the things that, that keep me coming back. You know, what got me to the unit was the technology, but what keeps me coming back are the people, the stories, the music, and the color. Well, they're, they're stories about real human experience, which never disappear, even when we're critically ill. That's right. You know, there's a story in the book about a guy named Jimmy Johnson, and he comes in the hospital uh, as a prisoner, shackled to the bed, but also with a tube down his mouth. And I looked at that circumstance, and I said to the team, why is he shackled? Why does he have a cuff on his leg tying him to the bed? And I told the, pr the prisoner's guard to take it off, and he, he wouldn't do it. So I actually did something I've never done before. This was in COVID. And I actually wrote a prescription for him to be unshackled, and I faxed it to the prison and then got the warden on the phone and insisted as his doctor that he be unshackled because it was part of his healing plan like an antibiotic. And I felt like if I took that approach, he couldn't say no, and he didn't. And within an hour, the shackle was off. He lifted his knees to his chest and looked at me with a nod that I'll never forget. And eventually we had great long conversations. I was able to get his sister to come visit with him. And these are the types of social justice things in every deep drawn breath. There's multiple different ones like that, that I think really point out the fact that we're dealing as humans with something that we have to put in the front of our mind, that every person there is a priceless being and that no manner of disease reduces the inestimable worth of a person by even an iota. And in that circumstance with Jimmy Johnson, his dignity had to be upheld. And I was thankful that I thought of that, doing that. And I'm going to do that from now on. And I'm sorry I'd never did it before. The story of Mr. Johnson reminded me of the line from the gospel uh, and the raising of Lazarus, where Jesus said, unbind him, let him go free. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. I love that you attach that to that circumstance. I, I do feel like that we shackle patients with chemical and physical restraints in the ICU. And one of the things that I've learned in my own just growing as a, as a physician is that I have a vocation in the ICU to liberate people. And whether it's liberating them from the ventilator, liberating them from a drug that's harming them, even if put on board at the beginning well-intentioned, I know that I have caused harm. It causes me pain to consider that I have done that, and I can't change the past, but I can change my present and where I move towards the future. And I think that the, the whole book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, is really about liberating people in the circumstance of illness. And the lessons that I learned as a physician I'm now applying those principles in all of my affairs, and I'm now learning how to unshackle and liberate 
lots of other things in my life and relationships from this ICU experience. So that's why I think that Every Deep Drawn Breath is not really a medical book. It's a book about people in life, and I hope that non-medical readers find a lot in there about healing and recovery that may not have anything to do with medicine. I'm glad you brought that up in that context, because I think if we allow it to happen, the experience of being seriously ill ourselves or being a caregiver for someone who's seriously ill can give us the occasion to begin to rethink priorities in our lives. I can't number the people who I've heard say this terrible experience I had health-wise was the best thing that ever happened to me because it changed the way I look at my life. And you must see that happening time and time and time again. I, I really do. And it's such a gift to me in my life. I almost feel selfish to witness it all. But I just feel privileged to be able to enter into these intimate moments of other people's lives and watch their kind of transcendent moment when they have this awakening and they realize, wow, you know, hardship really can be a pathway to peace. And a lot of them gain peace through these difficult experiences. And I'm not trying to, to wish pain and suffering on anybody. Of course, I would always do everything I could to relieve pain and suffering. That's my first, you know, primum no notary. That's my oath is to, is to first do no harm. So I, I do want to remove all su suffering and, and pain whenever I can. But despite my best intentions, people are going to have suffering. And what I find is that people do find a pathway to peace through that somehow. That's kind of a mystery to me, and I don't really understand it, but, but I know it to be true. And to witness that in the lives of my patients is a gift that I, I will never be able to earn. Wes Ely, I'm grateful for the work you do, and I'm grateful for the time you spent with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I want your listeners to know that I have converted this project into something to raise money for the patients and their families. I'm not making any money on this book. I, I'm going to donate every penny and net proceeds back to the patients and families into an endowment. And so if you're interested in, in this book and in this story, let your friends know and let's Let's do what we can to help these people out because there really is a great need and a lot of people are falling through the cracks right now and that's, that's our mission here is to help people be seen and heard and validated. Is there a section from the book that you want to read to, to end? Yeah, I think there is. Um, it's a one paragraph. Shortly after one of my patients told me she was an atheist and didn't believe in an afterlife, I witnessed a powerful end-of-life event between her and her family. An esteemed scientist, she asked each of her family members three times, the cadence slightly different each time, do you love me? They affirmed yes, and she gave them a hug and a kiss. Then she asked twice more, followed each time by another hug and kiss. No small feat of courage because she had intense pain from metastatic cancer and a fresh abdominal surgical incision. The emotion was raw, each family member open and exposed. They seemed to move beyond quick answers to thinking about the depth of their love, what it meant to them, to her. She had asked not to be knocked out with her morphine, wanting to be present for her loved ones. In completing her ritual, she turned to her other doctor and me and said, 
you are part of my inner circle now, then reached out to grant us the same enduring gift. We were stunned by her generosity and felt wholly unworthy. And the reason I chose to read that to you is that this woman told me also, she said, I know you and I have different faith paths. And I never told her what my faith path was, but I guess she understood that I did believe in a higher power. And she had said that she didn't. And she said, that's fine. You and I are swirling around in a vortex today as I lay here dying. And I want you to be part of this process, and I appreciate your care for me. And as she went through that ritual of do you love me three times in a row, I realized that I didn't even deserve to be watching that, and yet she had drawn me in. And time and time again in my life as a physician, my patients draw me in. It's a privilege I can't understand, but one that I never want to squelch or quiet or not fully appreciate. And it's what has drawn me to the desire to test and prove whether or not we can have people conscious, awake, and alert on life support. And I'm so thankful that the science played out because the people who are scientists on this list can find the support they want that the science proved that this new way of care improves survival, reduces length of stay, shortens the time they spend their suffering, reduces cost, and improves their long-term outcomes. And the humanist listening, who may not care about science, will know that there's a human touch, an aspect of eye contact, and something in these experiences that is intangible and unmeasurable and goes beyond anything that science could ever explain. So that's why I chose that excerpt. Wes Ely, thank you. Thank you, Sean. It's my privilege, a real gift to be here with you. The book is titled Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. Wes Ely is a pulmonologist and critical care physician in Nashville. He's professor of medicine at the Vanderbilt School of Medicine. If you'd like to read an excerpt from the book, visit our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. Dr. Ely is just one of the panelists on the upcoming online conference, Personalizing Care in a Transactional World. That's coming up on Monday, November 1st, from 8 a.m. to noon Pacific time. Registration's open, and you can find more information at instituteforhumancaring.org slash conference. Lots of great content from terrific, smart, passionate people. I hope you can join us. Lots of good content headed your way in the weeks ahead. We'll dive deep into poverty and health, exploring this crucial determinant of well-being. We'll ask what's working to alleviate disparity and what's left to be done. And also, we're planning a special holiday episode that will focus on young adults and grief and how COVID is changing the landscape for many. So make sure you're subscribed to the Hear Me Now podcast, wherever you get your audio on demand. Earlier, we heard from Dr. Matt Gonzalez, Chief Medical Information Officer at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. 
The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians, Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Amanda Schwartz, Catherine Gibbs, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.